Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Air Talks, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by the UK's Risk and Insurance Management Association. Well, in the last four episodes, we've had some really great insight on the pod from Air partners regarding potential claims activity, the crisis response early on, the role of the insurance manager and the shock to the UK and global economy. All those episodes are still available in our back catalogue, so please do check those out on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox or any other app you get your podcasts from. This time, however, we thought we would take a step back and discuss the environment and thought processes which has led to countries and institutions to allow the coronavirus pandemic to have the catastrophic impact we are all experiencing today. Julia Graham and I were delighted to be joined by Michelle Wooker, a speaker, strategist and author whose 2016 book, The Grey Rhino, How to Recognise and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignore, has sold over 300,000 copies to date. There is a link to more information on the book and Michelle in the episode description. Michelle discussed with Julia and I the theory behind grey rhinos and whether the pandemic should be seen as such an event. So, Michelle, you coined the term grey rhino in your, your 2016 book and can you just first describe for us and our listeners if they haven't come across your work before what you mean by that term gray rhino sure so a gray rhino is the big two-ton thing that's pointing its horn straight at you it's snorting it's pulling the ground it's getting ready to charge at you and it's a metaphor for how much more likely humans are than we think to ignore the obvious thing and it's not like the elephant in the room where nobody's doing or saying anything by definition. This is the thing that people are talking about, that it should be a lot harder to ignore than it is. Um, It's rhino, obviously, because it's two tons and it's got a horn and it's dangerous. And it's gray because uh, there are five rhino species. One of them is the black rhino. One of them is the white rhino. But the black ones aren't black and the white ones aren't white. They're all gray, which ought to be the most obvious thing. Uh, But until now, nobody actually talked about rhinos being gray. So that adds to the metaphor of the obvious things that we don't pay proper attention to. Why did you think, Michelle, there was kind of a gap, not a gap in the market so much, but kind of a gap in our lexology that needed uh, defining and, and needed this label? There were two reasons. First, as you know, in uh, 2008, the market seized on this term black swan, which was a thing that was completely unimaginable, unknowable, unseeable, just outside of your field of reference and was intended to be a way to get you to realize how powerful improbable things are and to get you to expand your imaginations and create more resilient systems. Unfortunately, it ended up being used as a cop out. Oh, nobody saw it coming. And it's not how it was meant to be used. And I also felt it was it was dangerous. The specific issue that brought that to mind was that in my former life, I was a financial journalist writing about the restructuring of all the defaulted 1980s debt into Brady bonds. And I wrote about Argentina's crisis in 2001. Several months before that, there was a proposal on Wall Street for a restructuring, an automatic write down to some of the debt to try to get it back on a sustainable path. They didn't take that. And instead, nine months later, there was a chaotic default collapse, economic chaos. 
fast forward 10 years, I was looking at Greece, which was a very similar dynamic, debt going up, economy going down. The math was pretty simple. So I wrote a piece in spring of 2011 about how Greece needed to learn from Argentina and something very different happened. When I wrote about Argentina and this proposal for restructuring, all these bankers called me and they said, we think that's what needs to happen, but we can't talk about it publicly or we're going to be fired. And with Greece, I went on CNBC, the paper was widely uh, dis distributed and circulated, and it became part of a public dis discussion where everyone was talking about why Greece needed to restructure, something that had been taboo in 2001. So spring of 2012, uh, Greece and its creditors actually came to an agreement. And around that time, I had uh, taken a little bit of a break. I did an executive education course at Harvard with the World Economic Forum and was thinking about where I needed to go next. And that question came up just at the time where I realized it had been too long since I had written a book. And I decided to make that the central question of the book. Why do some people, policymakers, businesses, see a big scary problem coming at them and have the opportunity to do something about it, yet fail to take that opportunity? And the gray rhino became the metaphor to help to answer that question. Michelle, you, you know I'm, I'm a loyal supporter of, of your work, uh, both in the book and work that you've done for the World Economic Forum as well. And I think my sort of overarching comment is that I think what you have to say is very refreshing um, in the age of PowerPoint slides per minute of the world. You, you make a step back and think about things. And you can see in your publications that we've got lots of incidents that we knew about well in advance. So why is it, do you think, that leaders and decision makers keep failing to address obvious dangers before they hit you in the face and spiral out of control? Uh, do you have a view on, on why that might be? Absolutely. It's such a great question. It's The answer is a little bit different for everybody, but there are a few buckets the answer falls into. One is cognitive biases. I mean, humans are hardwired to look away from the things that are just too big to handle. And we don't look at what we don't want to see. We also, if we're faced with a long running chronic problem, we tend to tune it out. It's just like living next to a train. I, I grew up in the Midwest. There are a lot of trains here. It's pretty hard not to live near a train. And you learn to tune that out because otherwise you just can't get the things done that you need to get done on a daily basis. So some of the reason we ignore gray rhinos is defense mechanisms that have gone awry. They, they went rogue. The second reason why we ignore gray rhinos has to do with how we make decisions, what the incentives are. For example, politicians in democracies like the United States, they've got a very short-term outlook, and it's in their interest to kick the can down the road to the next guy. Instead of making some of the hard decisions you have to make when you're looking long-term, when you need to deal with some of these bigger problems that are not so easy to fix. And the other part of that is that we tend to celebrate people for cleaning up problems, but not for preventing them. We don't sing their praises when they do something that, that heads off a bigger problem. In the United States, we look at a, a, a George Bush uh, senior and his decision to raise taxes at a time when the economic numbers were, were not looking good and it was the right decision. And typically people 
blame that decision for his failure to get reelected, even though other people say that wasn't the real reason. It was really much more that the, that the economy wasn't turning around fast enough, even though he made the right decision. And uh, he later received a Profiles in Courage award for that. And I think we need to do a lot more celebration of people who make hard decisions that ultimately reduce the cost to us, even though in the short term, we might grumble a little bit. So there are those those structural issues in, involving how we look at short-term versus long-term, the political incentives to make decisions one way or the other. And in some cases, unscrupulous people recognize how likely we are to look away from the things that we don't want to see. And people will capitalize on our instinct to deny. That's what we see with climate change. It's what we saw with tobacco. Nobody wanted to stop smoking. So they were perfectly happy to ignore the health warnings, as were the big companies. So there are people who will prey on our susceptibility to denial. And we need to learn when people are trying to get us to continue to deny things that we really ought to be paying more attention to. Thanks, Michelle. I think um, let's let's take it to present day and, and kind of the crisis that we're all facing uh, right now around the world. And obviously, on the topic of prevention, I think it's probably fair to say, with few exceptions, that there's been kind of a mass failure of prevention when it comes to the current coronavirus pandemic that we're facing. Where does the coronavirus pandemic qualify for for you, uh, Michelle, in this kind of on the kind of the grey rhino category? And and why do you think so many countries and organisations that have been caught out by it? Well, there have been so many warnings about pandemics. Pandemics are what I call a recurring rhino. You see them over and over again. It's it's a cycle, just like financial cycles, boom and bust, boom and bust. You're only going to be able to go so long before one happens. And in fact, my great-grandfather died in the second wave of the 1918 flu pandemic in Milwaukee. So these are things we see over and over and over again. Uh, there were so many warnings. Uh, Johns Hopkins has a, a great scenario planning uh project that it has been going on for a while. Uh, there was a scenario planning exercise within the Trump administration last year, uh, no less, that just didn't get the attention up top that it should have. A Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, the World Health Organization had a pandemic preparedness report that also warned so many warnings. And this is not necessarily a case of, you know, most of us, quote unquote, should have seen it coming, which is a phrase that drives me crazy. It was that the people whose job it was to see it coming did their job they warned us. And the people who didn't see it coming or who did see it coming and looked the other way were the people with the power of the purse strings, the people who could have made a difference, and they didn't. They made other decisions about where to spend resources that ended up being the very worst decisions. And then even once the, the coronavirus itself had been identified, we were already seeing a crisis in China, there were decisions in the United States to ignore it, to actually to, to bury it. In, Janu in January, uh, senior government officials were being briefed on it, and privately, they were selling stocks that would be affected by it and buying healthcare and telemedicine stocks that would benefit, while publicly they were saying, hey, this is not a big deal. So there was an, actually an element 
of lying and telling people what they wanted to hear. And then now as we're in the thick of it, you're still seeing some people who are saying, oh, it's just a flu, saying, oh, it doesn't matter how many people die, really downplaying the seriousness of it and not doing a very good job of looking at the cost-benefit analysis of measures to hold it back. So we've got a real perfect storm of people looking the other way, uh, people who have financial interests in you know, certain companies getting contracts. And it's, it's very distressing to see. We also are seeing very different responses in different countries around the world. Uh, it's, it's been fascinating to see. Some people have tried to put it down to a, a political divide, but you actually see you know, some authoritarian governments doing better and some doing worse. You see some democracies doing better and doing worse. Uh, what it really comes down to is whether people across the population are willing to do the hard things that they need to do in their individual lives and whether governments are willing to step up, be transparent about what's going on, whether they're willing to to track the situation, whether they're willing to invest in protecting people. And that means economically, as well as in terms of protecting their health, particularly the, the frontline healthcare workers. So we've we've really got a systemic collapse here in many countries in the things that need to be done to keep this grey rhino from trampling us. So I've had a number of debates with colleagues in the risk world. And um, from from what you say, um, the pandemic is much more grey rhino than black swan. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you look at organisations like the Edelman Trust Barometer, where, where they're looking at the, the level of trust that perhaps also needs to be reconstructed once we start to revert whatever the next normal looks like. Do you think this is more government than corporation-led? Um, where, where do you think the best opportunity for successful recovery rests? Is it in governments taking leadership or is it in corporations taking leadership? I think it's in everybody doing their part. In the United States, we've seen a huge variety in corporate responses from some, you know, very ill-considered letters from landlords at the beginning of the crisis, you know, saying you better pay your rent or else to companies that have, you know, have reached out to their clients with with help, uh, with with empathy. You've seen a government response that people have been very upset to see has given relief money to large corporations who've got other ways to get money and money hasn't gotten quickly enough to the small business businesses, the individuals, and, and even more the gig economy workers who don't have the sort of safety net that workers in corporations do. You're seeing a lot of uh, reputational risk to companies that that aren't paying attention to what they what their actions look like. There's a lot of role for companies to provide supplies. There's a distillery here in Chicago that when they were shut down, switched over to uh, making hand sanitizer right away. And they ran a, a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for the supplies. And they you know, donated their facilities and you know, paid their employees. So there's some companies that have stepped up, that have changed what they're doing, uh, that have really tried to help. And then there are the companies who are just saying, you know, put me first and, you know, ignoring the fact that we're all in this 
together. And then there's the role of individuals, which I think could have a silver lining in this, in that many people have realized that what every single person does is a lot more important than they thought before. Uh, You look at the contagion factor and how one person who doesn't wear a mask, you know, a, a group of people who went out to restaurants before restaurants were shut down. People who here in Chicago went down and partied on the beach on the first warm day of the year and got the lakefront shut down for the rest of us. It really does come down to every single person doing their part to protect the people around them, whether it's their family and friends or neighbors or you know, a, a much broader group of people, because as we've seen, this this virus has such a global reach. So it it really does come down to everyone, and I think it's an important lesson for all of the shared policy problems that we have. You've got ideological groups in the states who will say, "Oh, it's all about business. Oh, it's all about government." A group called Rare looked at the top thirty behavioral responses that. Project Drawdown had identified for reducing greenhouse gases. And they said that basically between about 20% and 37% of greenhouse gases could be reduced just by behavioral changes by individuals. And it doesn't solve the whole problem, but it goes quite a far way. So one of the things that could come out of this is really a new look at the importance of businesses, of governments, of individuals. And the question is not, you know, who should do something because that's resolved. Everybody needs to do something. It's who can do what most efficiently and how do they work together? Thank, thank you, Michelle. That, that's really interesting. And what I just want to ask you, Julia, is um, regarding the great rhino concept and theory, how do you think that is useful to our, our members and risk professionals in the context of their day-to-day risk management jobs? I, th- I think the first thing is that pick up Michelle's readings and work and, and have a look at it, because I think it is required reading for um decision makers get familiar with much of what Michelle is saying because we can only have a synopsis here and and there's some great material uh, that Michelle has produced. I think the second thing is how can the risk professional open the boardroom door to some of what Michelle has been sharing with us? And I think the route to that is to take a fresh look at how you manage risk in your organisation Um, There are some organisations, not all, I do realise that, but there are some that steadfastly produce risk registers of their top 10 or 15 risks, and they do impact and probability assessments and look at them by severity. And that very process is highly dangerous because what you miss are the low probability, high impact risk areas like a pandemic. And uh, as Michelle will know, the World Economic Forum Global Risk Report has had pandemic sitting on it for many years. The UK Risk Register has had pandemic sitting on it for many years. But it is one of those areas that we think, well, yeah, if it happens, it could be disastrous, but it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen to us. I think what we have to realise is that it does happen. And in our connected world today, if it happens, man has created the perfect vehicle for a virus like COVID-19 to spread. We have um, devices called aircraft. We have uh, places to stay like hotels. We love big gatherings. There are certain cultures that like to kiss and hug each other. 
uh, even when you don't know people very well. So we're very sociable and therefore we've created the environment in which this can become a problem. So I, I would urge that people go back and they look at these high impact, low probability risk areas that you don't necessarily use all the usual risk techniques with them, horizon scanning and some, some scenario modeling, which is fun to do and interesting and engaging and captures boardroom attention and try and raise the profile of these issues. And I think the average risk professional is incredibly well positioned to do that. So prepare yourself, inform yourself, understand these tools and techniques before you use them, of course, and don't throw away the risk registers. They still have a place. It's just not the only place in the toolkit of what you do and the reports that you produce. So there's, there's an opportunity, I think, for risk professionals to grow um, their influence through being prepared and being informed. And I think you'll find that most boards and C-suite peers will find this work fascinating. And you've got to capture attention, to capture engagement, and to get people um, to listen. So I, I think preparation, thought process, and making it interesting, um, but not laborious, uh, I think will we'll capture people's attention and combine it um, with other work. We've mentioned Edelman. We've went, mentioned the World Economic Forum. There's some fantastic material there. And there are a lot of risk professionals that don't necessarily know about some of it. Um, and I think you should get informed. One of the things that fascinates me that I'm doing more work on to to build on what I wrote about in, in The Grey Rhino is the emotional side of this. Uh, one of the reasons that I picked an animal metaphor, you know, in the in the great tradition of, of Aesop, uh, was that I understood that people really needed an emotional connection to things. My background is in policy and finance. I'm super happy with spreadsheets and uh, geeky analysis, but it's become very obvious to me that that's not how people respond. And I'm hoping to fill something of a gap between the very fine work that risk professionals do and the other people in the company and those who need to have more of a sense of urgency than they do. One of my favorite tricks is to show a video of a a big rhino. I think it's actually a black rhino, which supposedly are the the most um, grumpy ones. Is about to charge a car, and people see that and they gasp. And that's the emotion that I want people to engage with to say, "Hey, we need to do something about it." I've been very surprised by just how much people have embraced this on the personal level. Saying, you know, I apply this to my personal life. I think about the the big thing that's coming at me and try to do something about it. So I think that that's, that's a very important tool for risk professionals, that they can provide a way for people to engage emotionally with the big risk that they need to deal with, uh, instead of just saying, okay, here's another report. And yes, I know my board needs to do a risk analysis. So we, we tick that box and we're done with it. And the best analysis in the world isn't going to have the impact that it should unless you can engage people's hearts as well as their minds. Uh, and that's really what I hope that the Grey Rhino can do.
Well, thank you to Michelle Wooker for joining us all the way from Chicago on the latest episode of Airmic Talks. As mentioned at the top of the episode, more information and links to Michelle's work can be found in the episode description. As ever, please do stay safe, healthy, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.